Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. I am so glad we're going to spend the next hour together. And wherever you are and what you're do, whatever you're doing, this hour is designed to help you think biblically and critically. And the more I read, the more I'm beginning to understand that out there in the marketplace of ideas, there is this icky mythology that said that somehow Christians can't think. And that bothers me because if you go through the scriptures, boy, there's some profound thinkers that we read in scripture. Number one. Number two, if you go into world history, some of the greatest thinkers in the history of the world were people who had a biblical worldview. And now in this post-truth culture in which we find ourselves, knowing how to think critically is extremely important, not just in the world of apologetics. That's part of that contending for the faith and providing that reason, the Bible says, that we're supposed to do for the hope that resides within us. But I do think the paradox here is not to be missed, that while we live in a post-truth world where feelings are preeminent, there are still people who say, I need an argument that comes through my mind before it reaches my heart. My husband was one of those people, by the way. 
anyway. That's why I gave him every bit of C.S. Lewis we had in our house so that he would begin to understand that it's not an either-or proposition when you come to the Lord. It isn't faith or reason, and that the two are not mutually exclusive. This is summarized in the declaration that when we come to Christ, not only is our heart renewed, but our, our transformed, but our mind is renewed. It's not an either-or proposition. Sometimes I think it's a ruse or a smokescreen, but I don't want to give them any more cannon fodder. So we love apologetics on this broadcast because it's a way when you get to the marketplace. And by the way, tell me, you can talk among yourselves, but tell me you are planning on going there, right? Because John 17 says that's where we're supposed to go. And if you're fishing for men, that's where the fish are. So why wouldn't you be out there in the marketplace of ideas? But when we get there, sometimes we're like deer in a headlight and we don't know how to give a reason for the hope that resides within us. So we're going to talk about one particular issue today that the Bible addresses with clarity. Now, the culture's talked about it a lot, but don't you just love the way the Word of God applies to all people in all times and in all places? If you really get into it, you just can never get to the bottom of it. Get into it, and you'll never get to the bottom of it. And we're going to, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I just love the way the word applies to the world around us because the gospel changes everything. We're going to spend the hour with a man who thinks as his ministry, and I praise God that he does. Abdul Murray is with us. He's the president of Embrace the Truth Ministry. He will go anywhere the Lord opens the door, and he will, and I'll use the word again, contend for the faith winsomely and convincingly. He's authored several books, and every time he writes, I can't wait to get in that line of people that's going to talk to him from grand central question to more than a white man's religion. He does a fabulous job. He got a degree in psychology, which I think is brilliant because it really helps him engage with people. And then he went on and got his law degree from the University of Michigan Law School. So I am thrilled that we get to spend the hour with him. So Abdu, the warmest of welcomes. And I was thinking in anticipation, joyous anticipation of our conversation today, that I don't want to start with the idea that everybody listening from Guam to the Cayman Islands, and thank you, Lord, for that footprint, and to you we give all the glory, but I don't want everybody listening to think that they understand exactly what Embrace the Truth is. So I thought we'd start first, just a little journey. How was that ministry birthed? Because the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think we're going to learn a little something or two about Abdu by talking about this ministry. So tell me the story. You know, I'm so glad glad to do that, Janet. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always such a joy. Um, yeah, so the ministry uh, started, you know, it's funny, people always ask me, how do you get involved in apologetics work? And I, I sort of quote my, my good friend, Greg Kokel, who's got a wonderful apologetics ministry called mm-hmm. Stand to Reason mm-hmm. himself. And he, he, his advice always, always has been, and it worked out for me, was bloom where you're planted. Um, so what had happened was um, I came to faith through apologetics after a nine-year search for from my Muslim background, and uh, a buddy of mine, Mike Messi, one of my closest friends in the whole world, he was a former skeptic, and he came to faith about a year before I did. Uh, but we had wrestled for years on big, tough issues and, and philosophical thinking, even as teenage boys. Uh, we would talk about the nature of nothing and, and why are things the way they are and all these kind of things. You know, typical teenage boy talk. We were such mm. nerds. Um, uh, but um, uh, he and I w- were wrestling with these things, and we started going to the same church because when we got saved. And then um, a good friend of ours who was a Jewish believer uh, happened to be at the same church, and he saw that we were doing, we had a group called the Bereans, uh, just mm. a small group at our church called the Bereans. And so we started uh, doing Q&A, because our pastor trusted us enough to let us do that. We started doing Q&A together. But one thing that we noticed was this, is that no matter how much 
intellectual information you might have about the Christian faith and the credibility from the philosophical and the scientific and the theological and even the existential. At some point, there comes a time when the question isn't, is this true? The question is, is this worth it? Mm. And so from all of our backgrounds, my, my friend who was a former skeptic, him coming to faith cost him something. For me as a former Muslim, coming to faith cost me something. And my Jewish friend who became mm. a believer in Christ and, and, and embraced Yeshua as his Savior and the Messiah, it cost him something. So we recognize something that it isn't just something to discover the truth, but it's another thing altogether to actually embrace the truth and make it a part of your life. So what we're trying to do at Embrace the Truth is take, um, go from mere intellectual assent that the gospel could be true to embracing the beauty of its truth. And so we offer the credibility of the gospel to every questioner we encounter. We started off as a church group. Uh, we uh, got on the radio by God's grace a couple of times, and the, the following started to um, started to uh, amass. And then, mm-hmm. at some point, uh, my, my best buddy is a pastor now at a church that I speak at regularly. Uh, my, my buddy, the Jewish believer, he is now doing something else, uh, but still following the Lord um, uh, and in retirement. Uh, so it left me <laughs> to sort of run the ship and man the man the rails, as it were. Um, and so we've been doing that ever since. And we go to hostile places like universities and um, uh, secular universities and these kind of places. So we, we go places we thought we could never go to say things we thought we could never say to people we thought would never listen, but they are listening. Well, boy, am I glad I asked you that question. I'm never going to be able to think, pray, or talk about your ministry, embrace the truth the same way again. And you said something so profound which is it's one thing to recognize truth, but then you have to do something with it. It can't just stand there like you're looking at it through a glass window. It's truth and it requires a response. And what you're challenging us to do is embrace it, ellipse, even if it costs us something. So much to talk about with Bob Dumare. I love my time with him. He makes me think and I'm grateful for it. Back after this. The truths of the Christian faith are powerfully clear and wonderfully deep, but sometimes we don't fully understand what we believe. That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith as this month's truth tool. Know the foundations of faith and reinvigorate your walk with Jesus. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We have the privilege, and boy, do I count it as such, to spend the hour with Abdul Murray, president of Embrace the Truth Ministry. And you just got the Cliff's Notes on how that ministry was birthed. He's a wonderful speaker and author. He's written several books, and one in particular I think is germane to what we're going to talk about this hour. It's called More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion. Now, in my town, one of our newspapers here is a newspaper called The Washington Times, and Abdu was asked to write a piece that showed up in The Washington Times with a headline that read as, the fo- as follows, The Biblical Foundation of MLK's Famous Words to Judge Based on Character, Not Skin Color. And the subtitle, 
real battles to fight and real dragons to slay when it comes to racism. So obviously, we start with the issue of character. And then I want to get to justice, social justice, biblical justice. There's a thousand things that you put in this article that was, to say the least, extremely thought-provoking. And I'm so glad that the Lord opened the door for this piece to run in a paper read on the train by commuters from all worldviews. So you planted seeds, Abdu, that you will never know until you're in glory. And I just want to thank you for that because, again, it was another one of those telling the words to people that may not want to hear them, but they couldn't avoid it when they read the Washington Times. So talk to. let's go to the famous quote, by the way, because it's often quoted, and it seems to me that for the believer— that it's just a self-evident truth that, that there shouldn't be, because First Samuel says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So that says, says something about externals versus internals. But what was King's famous quote for people who don't know it? Yeah, so uh, it, it, it's in the famous I Have a Dream speech, where, where he gave it in several, people don't know this, but not just at the Washington, uh, sorry, the Lincoln Memorial, but he gave it um, in several places, including in my hometown of Detroit, where he gave a version of that speech where he essentially field tested it. Um, and he has this dream where um, little black children and little white children will be judged and his children will not be judged based on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Mm-hmm. It's such an important and powerful um, uh, quote. It's one that's often quoted, but I think is given just a shrift that people say, oh, that's nice. It's become a cliche almost, mm-hmm. which is sad mm-hmm. because the entire speech is worth reading. In fact, uh, his letters from a Birmingham jail, which is an even deeper uh, plumb into some of these things about the biblical basis for some of his ideas is so important. So that's what he was centering on is like this dream that he has that one day his children and the children of white families and the children of non-black families will be judged based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. He's not saying be colorblind. He's not saying that. He's saying see people for the wonderful diversity God has painted into the canvas of reality. But he's saying don't judge people um, as good or bad, morally deserving or morally undeserving based on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character and the actions that they actually um, exhibit. Well, okay, so let me linger here. And this is the joy of having an hour with you because I don't have to hop, skip, and jump so much. So let me linger here for a minute. Mm-hmm. The directive is exactly that in First Samuel, the idea that you have to, first of all, there's the transcendence of Imago Dei, that, that, that idea should immediately be transmitted because I see the image of God in my fellow man. So that immediately demands respect and dignity. But mm. also more than that, I, I think in a post-truth world, and I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C., where we've had an awful lot of conversations about the topic of character. It mm. was used when a president committed immorality in office. It's used in the way presidents talk and the way they behave. So let me start from a bibliocentric perspective. If I'm defining the word character, that, that King's statement is meaningless if I don't know what the words mean. So when we talk mm. about character, what is character? Yeah, it, it it is essentially the the keeping in uh, the keeping in line with an objective morality, keeping your behavior in line with an objective morality that dictates what's good and what's evil, um, and uh, sticking to truth, maintaining consistency, being who you are in private, in the same way you are in public, mm-hmm. and not sacrificing morality. Um, and integrity for gain. The, 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 you could have a whole book just on this one word about yes. what it means to have a character that is so filled with with um, content that people actually want to read. 
Um, and I think it's all that. It's consistency. It's morality. It's, it's, it's um, humility. It's all of these things wrapped into one. So I think this is an important, an important concept to really, really grasp. And Jesus not only modeled it for us, but talked about it all the time as well, because yes. he confronted those people who were hypocrites, those people who had outward religiosity, but were inward, were, you know, were like dead men's uh, graves and, and tombs filled with bones. So um, it really is the consistency of the outward with the inward. Um, and uh, maintaining that is such an important part of what it means to be um, a good leader yeah. uh, and a good person, even if you're not a leader. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I remember talking to J.C. Watts, who was one of my favorite people, ser- favorite people serving on Capitol Hill, and he said to me once, character is defined as what you do when nobody's looking. Mm, and I thought indeed. that that would, particularly in Washington, where it's all you know magazine covers and separate elevators for members of Congress and the best tables in town, it's easy to display a public character versus a private mm. character. But the you second know, it's thing, interesting. One of the things I just wanted to uh, jump in, uh, because you're, you're, that, that quote about it's, it's doing what's right when no one's looking, there's also this one statement from Abraham Lincoln, and I think it factors into not only 2024 and what's special about 2024, um, but also uh, in our workaday lives. Lincoln said, if you want to test a man's character, don't give him adversity, give him power. Um, adversity does reveal character, but but power really reveals character. You know why? Because I think in many respects it has the potential. doesn't happen all the time. It's rare, but it also is the antithesis of humility because power can be self-exalting, which is the negator of what humility is. So that's such mm-hmm. a very insightful comment. But mm-hmm. let me talk about this idea about character, and I'm going to use the phrase again only because I think that defines where we are better than post-modernity or post-Christian. Mm-hmm. If Oxford mm-hmm. says the word is post-truth, it means that we flipped the equation where the affective supersedes the cognitive. So truth doesn't matter as much as it used to. It's how I feel. So let me posit the question because you hear the music. So the bumper sticker in this town during the years of one presidential administration was character counts. So do we care about character? Maybe this is a philosophical question, but why would I want to obtain it if I don't care about it? So in a post-truth world where feelings supersede, that opens the door wide to situational ethics, that I can do whatever I need to do as long as I get to my desired end which means you can work in the shadows, you can cross the lines, you don't have to be consistent, you don't have to be moral because your desired goal supersedes everything. So does character still count today? And can we reinstate that value if it doesn't? More with Abdumari right after this. More Than a White Man's Religion, just one of the many books that Abdul Murray has written. I've got it on my info page, if that title intrigues you. The book is fabulous. Abdul and I have had multiple conversations on this book, and uh, it's so important to understand the broad, diverse, inclusive, am I using all the right terms, words, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the president, of course, of Embrace the Truth Ministry. And the catalyst of our conversation is a piece that Abdul wrote that showed up in one of my papers here in Washington, D.C., called The Washington Times, with the title, The Biblical Foundation of MLK's Famous Words to Judge Based on Character, Not Skin Color. So we're doing a little bit more of a deep dive into the concept of character, because I have to tell you, while it was the word du jour through multiple experiences here in Washington, D.C., in the culture writ large, I'm not sure that character matters anymore. And that's where I was just before the break, Abdu, which is character counts was an ideological bumper sticker for many years in this town, particularly when we saw immorality played out in the Oval Office. Um, 
But, and, and I believed at that time, this is just how much we've shifted since that period of American history. And I'm not talking about global. I'm talking about American application right mm-hmm. now. That character was universally understood that character counts. I'm not sure, my two cents, my opinion from where I'm sitting in the peanut gallery, I'm not sure that character still counts or more directly maybe character matters. Mm-hmm. What is your gut feeling on this? And if it doesn't, how do we get that to be a value worth valuing, if I can put it that way again? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you asked this question because I think about this a lot. You know, there's um uh, two contrasts I want to draw real quick if I can. And it's one it's it's um a time when and I remember where I was um when when this was the issue when there was a um a moral failing in the highest office in the land. Mm-hmm. Um and um of course people said character counts, character counts and and everyone was saying it and they were right to say it. Um Right about uh, a few years after that, I remember um, uh, here in the in the area I live in, someone who held the highest office in one of the major cities here in uh, Metro Detroit area had almost the exact same moral failing and some of the exact same legal issues that arose from it. Now, what was interesting to me was the contrast in the way the public responded. And with regard to the highest office in the land, in the Oval Office, people had said, why would we rock the boat? Why would we change things right now? The economy is going great. Things are going so well. This would be a national embarrassment. There's all kinds of reasons to not do it because those were expedient and pragmatic for character not to count at that moment. In other words, why would we do this? Things are good. Don't mess with things. When it came to the area, this area here, things were economically not so great here in the metro Detroit area. And so it suddenly became a clamor and saying, hey, you know what, character does count. We're going to get this guy out of office and in fact have him spend prison time. The contrast, I think, about why in one sense character counted as a slogan but didn't end up counting hmm. uh, in, the, in the end of the day was because things were going well and truth had a price. If we stuck to truth and to, and to character and that truth mattered and that character exhibiting truth mattered, we would pay a price for that. But here in the Metro Detroit area, we had nothing to lose. So why not have character count? So I'm not quite sure in politics that, uh, that the American uh, public always thinks that character counts. I think mm. we say it, mm-hmm. but do we actually mean it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question becomes, to me, back to what we talked about in the beginning, it's one thing to say we want truth. It's one thing to say we want character, but it's another thing to embrace it even when it costs you something. And so I think now, back then, we can learn a lesson. We said character counted, and some of us were willing to go wherever it took to make sure that truth was, was, was championed. But largely, I think it's just human nature. It's part of the sin nature. It's part of what it means to be human. I'm victim of it. Everyone else is victim of it as well. That oftentimes, truth takes a backseat to comfort. Yes. Um, and as C.S. Lewis said it so beautifully, is that if we look for truth, we will find comfort in the end. But if we look for comfort, we will only get soft soap to begin with, but in the end, despair. And mm-hmm. so to answer the second part of your question is that how do we get people to care about this again? I think there is a, a pragmatic level at which we have to say character counts, not just because I want my, my, my leaders to be character-filled people, but character counts because it leads to good decisions. It leads to lasting decisions. Ultimately, I think character leads to the kind of thing where you have someone like Lincoln, for example, who was presiding over a country that it couldn't be more split. We were literally shooting each other over our split. And yet, because character counted, you had a statesman like that mm. who could bring things together. Now, we're not in a civil war right now, but we are in a social sort of upheaval and polarization. The only way to bridge the gap is to have someone who is a statesman 
for whom truth is the is the ultimate goal and character is the expression of that goal. Mm, wow. So there are several things in what you just said I want to pull out. One of them is when you talked about the difference of the application of character on a local versus a national level. I was thinking therein lies the rub, and that is, are we looking for outcome-based virtues? So mm. in other words, if it gets me what I want, then I'll practice that virtue, that value, that ethic. If it doesn't, then I'll skirt it. And mm. that's horrible because yeah. isn't character about doing the right thing? This is, goes to your, your wonderful word, embrace again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't character mean doing the right thing regardless of what the outcome is. It's the antithesis of what we saw in those two differences, uh, uh, different exper- experiences that you talked about. So if it is going back to your definition, consistency, morality, humility, those things, even if it may cost me something, should be done because it is the right thing to do, not based on what the outcome might be. Yeah, and I think that the the the, the chief thing here is that when we, we make an economy between right and outcome, ultimately that which is right is itself the outcome we want. Mm. And if it takes, if it's harder to get there, that's fine. We don't want ease of outcome. We want the right outcome. And if it takes longer, then so be it. Yeah. Amen. Wow, this hour is going too fast. It always does when we Bob Dumouriez because he makes us think. When we come back, how about the word justice? Because Abdul used that in his piece that was in the Washington Times. Is there a difference between social justice and biblical justice? Martin Luther King talked about justice, so we'll pick up that idea when we return. the sort of person who likes to have the inside scoop, who wants to be informed? When you become a partial partner, you're not only keeping this program on the air every weekday, you'll also receive exclusive benefits like personal emails from me. I'll help you learn how to look at the headlines with a biblical perspective. Become a partial partner today by calling 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We have the privilege of talking with Abdul Murray, who's the president of Embrace the Truth Ministry. He speaks all over the place. And when he's not speaking, he is writing. And we're so thankful. He's got a great blog, by the way. I've got a link to Embrace the Truth so that you can read his blogs. You can see his podcasts, all fabulous, multiple books that he's authored. But the one I think that's germane, and there isn't a one I wouldn't endorse, but the one that's germane to what we're talking about today is called More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion. And that's because Abdu wrote a piece that showed up in the Washington Times called The Biblical Foundation of MLK case famous words to judge based on character not skin color and that you write so many excellent things in this article but something that really caught my attention was this you write justice has become a political tool not necessarily a goal to be achieved the bible is obsessed with justice as a goal not a tool that's a completely clear that's a clear distinctive between the two break that down for me abdul yeah, absolutely. I think that um, uh, what we're seeing today in terms of using words like justice, you know, it's funny when you look at um, the, the common parlance, uh, parlance right now and the the sort of uh, vocabulary of the day, what you see is people appending the word justice to the end of some some issue that they like. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have climate change. Now we have issues of climate justice. We don't have issues of poverty. Now we have 
economic or income justice. Um, and I, I get it. We, we want to rectify certain wrongs and, and, and address certain issues that we maybe even disagree on. But when you append the word justice to it, what you basically have done is made it into a tool where clearly the people who don't agree with you are now unjust people. It's a war of rhetoric. And justice was never meant to be a rhetorical word to win points. It was meant to be a concept that was to be um, uh, pursued with such a fervor and such a zeal that it's part of a, 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 a triumvirate of virtue that the Bible says in Micah 6, 8 is to seek justice, mm. love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But when we append justice to any issue we, have, we, we tend to have of the day, what we end up doing is creating an us versus them mentality. And we become more superior to those who don't actually share our version of what that justice might be. And so what we end up happening, having is that we don't seek justice, we seek an agenda. And mm. therefore, those who oppose us don't deserve our mercy. So we, we, love, we lose our love of mercy. And if we do that, if we have a superiority over other people, how do we walk humbly? And how do we submit ourselves to God? Because we have become our own arbiters of what's good and right. That's why the biblical definition of justice as simply the fair treatment of all people in certain and similar circumstances where a, a just and fair outcome is there and where we right the wrongs that have been meted upon people uh, in and of themselves for the sake of loving people and loving God that's why it's so important to have a transcendent source of this because it becomes a goal to be achieved when it remains transcendent and it goes beyond human opinion as a moral category. But when it comes a tool, it becomes the kind of thing that people throw about and weaponize. And then, yes. then, you, then you lose all sense of what it means to love people and walk humbly. Yeah. Well, again, such astute observations on your part. I, my observation, again, in the peanut gallery is that because it has been affixed, and maybe I hear it loudest here in D.C., because it's been affixed to a policy issue or a political issue, there has been a repulsion of the word now. And we step back because the minute we hear it, we hear it subscribed to a particular special interest group mm. or a party, and we don't want it. And yet there's yeah. that declarative statement in Micah 6.8, as you pointed out before. So give me, and you, you touched on what that means from a biblical mm. perspective, but meet that out a little bit more because for a lot of sure. people— and here I am talking to a man who has his Juris Doctorate. It's easy to think that justice is a legal term that's applied within the parameters of the court, but it has very little placement in our life at large. That's not true. The Bible wouldn't have told us to seek justice if it was mainly to be something that was derivative of the court system. So how does that look in my everyday life? You touched on it a moment ago, but fleshed it out a little bit because we have to embrace the word again. That repulsion yeah. needs to be negated. We have to go back to replacing it with acceptance because we've been given the directive to do just that's a declarative statement. Seek Absolutely. justice. It's an action word. So talk to me about that. Yeah, it's an imperative. Um, it's right. a command. Uh, so I'm so glad you put it that way, too, because uh, that really does, I think, dovetail with what I was saying is that because it's become a tool, now it's become a, an, uh, something that we, whenever we hear the word, now we're like, oh, no, 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 that, that you're, 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 left of center, or you're doing this, right, or you're doing right. that. And so we, we hate this word now, when it's a, a word that the Bible is practically obsessed with um, uh, over and over again. You see that the, the cause of, the, of, of, of those who are downtrodden is something that we're supposed to live out in our everyday lives. Jesus says this over and over again. He even says that when we judge, we're to use a just judgment, not a hypocritical judgment. That's in our everyday life, talking with people on, uh, on our conversational levels. But we are to seek justice 
is for those who are downtrodden. Um, that's why it's important for us when Jesus says, you give me a cold a glass of water, you clothe me when I'm naked, you fed me when I was hungry. What you're trying to do is rectify um, uh, uh, inequity, inequities in the circumstances through the charitable giving. Not forced giving, but charitable giving of the heart. So it's an inclination of the heart. We are we required to be, as Christians, people inclined towards justice. When we see something that is unjust, we are meant to act, not to hope that one day someone else will do it or to uh, uh, sort of denigrate the whole thing as a, a social issue that is not really gospel-centered. The gospel is a spiritual thing, but we're supposed to live out that gospel in our everyday lives. And if we don't, then what are we doing, really? Um I think the issue comes down to uh, understanding that the Bible is, when it talks about justice, it talks about seeing a situation that th- where, where there is um, inequities born by iniquity, um, mm-hmm. that's, that evil has been wrought upon someone. And there's this interesting dichotomy here, and I want to play it out in English because I think I'm a, f- a lover of words and the way words parse out together. You have this word, vindication. What that really sense, sense means is that you look at the person who's been victimized, and when you're in a position to do so, you see that person. You see the wrong done to them. You acknowledge the harm, and then you try to fix it. And then what biblical justice does is it allows for that, that moment where we can actually fix the harm done to the victim, but we also allow for the redemption of the perpetrator or the one who has taken advantage even unwittingly of a situation so that we don't condemn only the the perpetrator. Biblical justice always seeks the redemption of the perpetrator. Now, it's not always possible uh, for that to happen based on the attitude and the character of that person, but it is something that allows for the possibility over and over again. What we have to be careful about is is the distinction. We have vindication which is seeking justice by seeing and rectifying the harm done to a victim. But then we have a thing called vindictiveness, Mm. and vindictiveness is just revenge. What's interesting is those two words in English share the same root in the original language. And so it's interesting that justice and revenge, even linguistically, look so similar. which means that we have a hard time distinguishing between mm-hmm. the two. There's a fine line between the two. And we have to ever strive to make sure that justice is what we look for. Vindication is what we look for, not vindictiveness. We leave vengeance to God because only he alone can see, as Solzhenitsyn said, the thin line of good and evil that runs in the heart of every human being. Um, so if the thin line linguistically between vindication and vindictiveness is there, how much more do we have to be vi- vigilant and diligent in pursuing justice as opposed to um, uh, uh, revenge in mm. our current society. So it's a part of our everyday lives. We have to do it every day. And the better we, the more we do it, it's an art, not a science. The yeah. more we do it, the better we get at doing it in our everyday lives and then on policy uh, and global issues as well. Maybe based on your very insightful observation about the distinction between vindication and vindictiveness, Maybe that's another reason why the word justice for too many Christians is off-putting, because so often Mm. it is associated with vindictiveness, and therefore we wash our hands of it. So let me flip this around again. Would Mm. you say that at its core, then, the story of the Good Samaritan is a justice story? 
oh, I think it's so many things. Uh, Ken Bailey does a wonderful job talking about the Good Samaritan uh, in his uh, book, Seeing, uh, G- uh, Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, mm-hmm. um, a, a favorite of mine. You know, you see this, you, see, you, see, you do see an issue of justice because there's law, right? There is don't touch uh, a foreign person or mm-hmm. a, a, possibly a dead body lest you be unclean. So there's the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law and the Good Samaritan who is, by the way, a person from the outside, someone who's not in that community. He is considered a, um, a dreg, as it were, or an outcast or a half-breed. He risks his life to rectify the wrongs he sees for a victim and then goes and he risks by saying, I'll pay you money. He goes to a Jewish town. The Samaritan man takes a Jewish guy to a Jewish inn and says, I'm going to pay you to take care of this man. And when your expenses exceed what I've paid you, I'm coming back. I'm going to put my life at risk again to come back to take care of this man. Because it's not about the color of his skin or the ethnicity with which he, he exists, but that he is made in God's image. Everyone is entitled to justice. And everyone uh, should be the one who expresses it, even at risk to yourself. So I, I do think at the core of it is justice. And I do think at the core of it, you see the outsider trying to tend to the insider, but in a way that says there is no distinction between us. Mm. Mm. Which is exactly what Jesus tells us and what his word tells us on a regular basis. Mm. I'm glad I have more time with Abdul Murray, president of Embrace the Truth Ministries. And look, when it's all said and done, We've spent the hour basically focusing on two key words, character and justice. And I still want to pursue this because in many respects, we've given up the idea that character is a virtue, something that we, if we're going to emulate Christ, should be a part of who we are. So we need to re-embrace that virtue and its application to our lives personally. Second of all, we've pushed back from the word justice because it's been affixed to maybe a political agenda or a policy idea you don't agree with. And yet... We are told in the imperative to seek it. More with Abdul Murray right after this. Writer, speaker, apologist, thinker, blogger, podcaster. I could keep going. That's who Abdul Murray is, president of Embrace the Truth Ministry. And again, I've chosen as the resource for our conversation today more than a white man's religion, why the gospel has never been merely white, male-centered, or just another religion. Fabulous book, by the way. So I, I said it before, and I'm very much of a pragmatist. Even if I, I love to think about, think about lofty things, it still has to come down to terra firma for it to make any difference in our personal lives. So I go back to First Samuel, and the reason why I love this verse is because I actually have a mirror in my house, Abdu, that has that verse around the margin of the mirror. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So why I find this interesting in our conversations about moving toward character and embracing the concept of justice is, in First Samuel, it's a declarative statement. Man does look on the outside. So what do we see? We see ethnicity, we see gender, we see color, and yet that's the antithesis of God. So the pessimist, the fatalist says, well, that's the human condition. You're only going to look on the outside. You're never going to have the ability to see the human heart. That's attributable only to a great and sovereign king. You're not going to have it so... Pfft, Fold your hands, give up, pull the covers over your head, call it a day. We can't allow that defeatism to impact our spiritual growth and maturity. More importantly, more simply stated, 
our desire to be conformed or transformed to the image of Christ. So how do we overcome that which is clearly evident? We don't need the Bible to tell us almost. It's so self-evident. You know, she's too fat, she's too old, she's too thin, etc. fill in the blanks. If that's our propensity, given our fallen state, how do we get beyond that and start seeing the image of God, which for a whole lot of people is like, oh, so esoteric and has no meaning in my everyday life? Yeah, and so it's so funny because I was just thinking about um, what it was in the Christian faith specifically that sets it apart from, I think, secular efforts to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly, because they don't mm. say, with your God. Um, and that's, I think, the uh, the added area here. So I mm. want to be careful not to espouse what some have called the miracle motif. So the miracle motif is this idea that if we just all become Christians and all believe that Jesus is our Savior and that we're all equally sinners, but all equally offered redemption, we'll suddenly believe in equality. Now, theoretically, sure, that's possible. But reality, no, that's not actually true. Because there were people who fundamentally believed the gospel and, fe- and clearly understood it, who owned slaves back when slavery was mm-hmm. still the law of the land. Mm-hmm. So clearly that wasn't always the case. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to believe in this sort of hand-waving miracle motif that we'll all suddenly believe good things and be great people just because we believe the gospel. Conversely, is what you just said also, is that we also shouldn't just give up and say, well, you know, it's, it's a hopeless cause, so, you know, chuck it. We're just going right. to um, live our lives and not care about these things. Um, because y- you pointed out so well is that we are to be conformed uh, Uh, and be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And that is a process of sanctification that takes time. I think secular efforts won't do. In fact, Matthew Paris, the atheist, uh, was talking about in in a piece he wrote called Why Africa Needs Christianity. He goes on for quite some time. He's an avowed atheist. And he said what he saw when he returned to Malawi, which was Nyazaland when he lived there, he said, embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. He said, Uh, International aid efforts, education efforts, and the work of NGOs, secular NGOs, are good, but they won't do. They're not enough. He said, what I witnessed was Christian evangelism making a change. He said, it changed people's hearts. And these are his words exactly. The rebirth is real. The change is good. The difference here is that sanctification is a process. If you know anything about math and especially calculus, you know about asymptotic lines, which is a line that 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 that, that almost that, that a parabolic arc almost reaches, and it goes on to infinity, and it gets closer and closer and closer to touching the line, but it never quite gets there. That's the sanctification process for us, and it'll be for eternity, where we learn more about God infinitely, but we also conform our characters more and more to His. Does that mean perfection will be ours one day, like it is for? God? No, but what it does mean is that we're getting there more and more and more with the help of the Holy Spirit. So do I think that secular efforts at equality are good? Of course I do. But do I think that they're sufficient? Of course they're not, because there is a problem with the human heart. And that's why when you look at, to go back to Dr. King, in Mm -hmm. his Nobel Peace Prize accepting speech, he eloquently said that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. Mm. I'm not sure. I, I, my guess is because he was such a brilliant guy, he knew what he was saying. But I want you to notice something. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. Why? Because Jesus claimed to be the truth. He didn't claim to have the truth. He claimed to be the truth. And the Bible tells us that God is love. So Jesus is God, which means that God is the truth and God is love. And God is the source 
of all of reality. So why is it that ultimately unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality? Because God, the word made flesh, is the one through whom all of reality came to be. And so unarmed truth and unconditional love are the fabric of reality. We have strayed from it, but it is the Holy Spirit and it is that conviction that we are that 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 God did this for us, which will get us there. That's why Tom Holland and other uh, uh, skeptics said it wasn't the Roman Empire or even the Greeks that gave us this notion of equality. It wasn't that. It was the Christian message that says we're all equally sinners and therefore leveled the playing field, but we're all equally offered redemption. John three sixteen that whosoever shall believe in Him, that's anyone, yeah. shall not perish but have everlasting life. Justice and equality and unarmed truth and unconditional love come from Jesus, the source of all reality. Wow. Wow. Superb. One quick last question. You have this as a quote from King in your article. I refuse to accept the idea that the aisles of man's present nature make him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. Doesn't that negate the position of saying, I'm going to fold my hands and give up? The eternal oughtness is a clarion call in our lives, is it not? Amen. That's exactly right. Wow. Mm. Abdu, this went far too quickly. What a joy to be with you. Thank you for encouraging us to think, to honor the Lord with not just our heart, but with our minds as well. And thank you for helping us to take back, because they were biblical ideas in the first place, the concept of character and the concept of justice. You beautifully articulated this in your piece that appeared in the Washington Times. I praise God for all those people sitting in the commuter trains or in their HOV cars coming into the nation's capital, reading the Times and being blessed by the thoughtful, thought-provoking words of Abdul Murray. And what a joy it is to be able to be provoked and to think when we're with Abdul Murray. God bless you, Abdul. Friends, I want you to learn more about Embrace the Truth Ministries. Again, I've got a fabulous resource for you, more than a white man's religion. It is an excellent book particularly in the times and the age in which we find ourselves. I thank you, friends, so much. Now, this is about getting you out there lovingly, consistently, gently, but nevertheless pushing you out into the marketplace of ideas. I'll see you there. See you next time.